All right, you should be there in your Bible or on your device, John chapter 8, verses 12 through 27. Always great to follow along and uh, compare notes. That's our text. The topic, Jesus tells the Pharisees opposing him that he is going away. The title of our message, Saviors Away, My Foes, Saviors Away. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. We're grateful. Our hearts are overflowing. It's, uh, I don't want to go too into this, Lord, but it's almost like a date night with you. We can just sit together, Lord, and listen to the word being read and taught, your Holy Spirit having free reign in our heart, Lord, to apply it. I pray that we would just relax and rest and settle in this morning, spiritually speaking, casting our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us, knowing, Lord, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, that we live a life of grace. We fulfill the law, but we're not under the law, Lord. And uh, I just pray that many, many insights would enrich us today. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Countdowns are expected in action and adventure films. Most often it's a timer on a bomb. The absolute, hands down, most intense, edge of your seat, I know he won't die, but I'm still anxious, diffusing 1964's Goldfinger. The bomb was in Fort Knox, where there used to be gold. Bond, James Bond, breaks the lock, opens the lid, exposing a complex device. Discs are whirling, bundled wires are running everywhere. The digital timer shows 0.32 seconds. Bond touches this and that, fumbling, making it clear he has no idea how to diffuse it. The never let them see you sweat secret agent man is sweating. It's a great piece of acting by Sean Connery, who seems genuinely shaken, not stirred. <laughs> As the seconds count down, he grabs a bundle of wires in both hands, just a random bundle. Just as he's going to try to separate them, hoping for the best, an agent arrives and stops him. The agent then reaches over and flips an on-off switch, turning the bomb off. The best part? The timer stops at 007. <laughs> Time was running out for the Jews to receive the Lord. In verse 21 we read, Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus would have a similar discussion with his disciples later on, but with a different outcome. On the night of his crucifixion, Jesus told them that he would be shortly returning to his Father in heaven. To them, Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When Jesus ascended into heaven, Israel missed her opportunity to crown Jesus king of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Not permanently, it was a postponement. We know that Jesus will return in a glorious second coming, and when he does, all Israel will be saved, according to the Apostle Paul. We live in the postponement. Believers say, time's up, because we know that the Lord could return at any moment to resurrect and rapture his church from, heaven, uh, from earth rather to heaven. Every heartbeat he waits is just one away from the rapture. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, 
Time's up for the church. Number two, the time is now for the unchurched. Time's up for the church, verses 12 through 21. We are in the church age. It will be followed by the seven-year great tribulation. Uh, Not necessarily immediately, not maybe the next day, but in a reasonable period of time. At the end of the seven-year great tribulation, Jesus Christ will return to rule the kingdom of heaven on earth for 1,000 years. When that millennial reign ends, the final resurrection of the human race will occur, both the righteous and the wicked. And then an eternity in heaven awaits believers. An eternity of conscious torment in the lake of fire awaits non-believers. The church age ends when Jesus returns to resurrect the dead in Christ and raptured living believers. This coming is presented in the Bible as imminent, and that is why we can live as though time is up, because it could be in the next heartbeat. Jesus was talking to Jews about the kingdom promised to them. He was not addressing the church. The church was a mystery revealed later. Promises specifically made to and about Israel are not for the church, nor are they applicable to other nations. Uh, we need to be so careful about this. If something is specifically to Israel, then it's not to us. We're a completely different group, and it's not to other nations either. Now, you can always discern and discover in the text things that apply to believers in all ages and that apply to nations in all ages. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel message is always the same. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. I know as a young Christian, so many people think that salvation was by keeping the law in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, it's by believing Jesus, grace uh, through faith. But the salvation has always been by grace through faith. The law just presented it a different way. We cannot claim what is not ours. And by the way, we don't want to because our blessings are better anyway. Anybody who wants to go back under the systems of the law, uh, don't do it. It's, it's, It's a burden. It's not a blessing. We last left Jesus in the temple teaching. Verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Remember Bormir's assessment of Mordor? It's one of my favorite uh, kind of soliloquies. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. That last part, I think, is about the Central Valley, but it it works. Is that how you see the world? The reality is so much worse. We are born spiritually dead into pitch spiritual darkness, completely blind, groping in the dark. Jesus came into the darkness and is the light source. When you believe Jesus, his life that was given for you is given to you. You receive spiritual sight and can successfully navigate the darkness of this world. In fact, you bring the light into the darkness to dissipate it. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. 
Jesus' miracles bore witness he was the Messiah. So they're saying, hey, you're just claiming to be this person, but we've seen his miracles and they are a witness. But like lawyers in a certain legal action, they were excluding his works from evidence. Do you watch those crime shows, uh, you know, and, and you find out that because of our laws in, in different ways, they will exclude something from evidence because they don't want to prejudice the jury. This guy was convicted 115 times for the same, uh, you know, offense, but we can't tell the jury that he's a serial whatever and stuff. And so the Pharisees, they were excluding evidence. They said, well, we're going we're to confront Jesus, but we're not going to bring up the evidence of his miracles. We're going to suppress it. There is so much evidence that the Bible is true and that it is the word of God. And so critics try to suppress it. The creation versus evolution debate, for instance. Evolutionists have done a wonderful job making people think creationism is based on unscientific leaps of faith. You leave your brain at the door, put it on the shelf, and believe some kind of weird spiritual you know, thing that, that it comes from the Bible. But in reality, if you really study it, creationism is the only explanation that fits the scientific findings. It has nothing to do with faith. Evidences of archaeology and geology and cosmology and all the other ologies that there are. Uh, the Bible is a greater source and deals with the fact. We're not afraid to look at, you know, the facts. And many times we can interpret them better than the evolutionist or the atheist. And so don't, you know... People start off on a bad foot because they feel they're defeated when, in fact, you need to start from the beginning and, and uh, realize that um, there is a ton of evidence for what we believe. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness would be true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. The testimony of Jesus holds greater prominence than that of a mere man because he had been for eternity in heaven. That's what he's getting at. It's, he says, hey, I, I, I'm, I was in heaven, now I'm on earth. I'm not just your normal Joe. Uh, you know, and, and so if, if I want to testify of myself, uh, I can. Jesus isn't another wise man who established a religion. Guys like Joseph Smith bore witness of themselves. Jesus was and is God. We have a Savior who transforms us, not a usurper who wants to reform us. And so Jesus says he is absolutely unique. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Sometimes this kind of double language trouble gets to me. You know, I just, I'm not very smart and it's hard for me to figure these things out. But this, one, this one's not too bad. I, what Jesus is saying here is he does judge, but not the way they did in the flesh by human wisdom. And so he says, I don't judge the way you judge, using only your flesh and human wisdom. I, I have a heavenly wisdom because I'm God. And when I do judge, uh, it's the right thing. The Pharisees lived according to the flesh, entirely by outward rules and rites, diets and days. Their evaluation was always firmly grounded in fleshly human wisdom. That's all they could see in their blind state. Everything was outward. 
And as long as they were keeping these outward things, they felt they were all right. C.S. Lewis comments, you cannot make men good by law. You can control behavior, you can show them what is good, but they cannot be made good by law and by keeping the law. They are all, they, the fact that they need law shows that they uh, are wicked and evil and need a transformation, not just reformation. The Pharisees started spiritual. They deteriorated to the sad condition we see them in in the New Testament. Christians in the church age always begin in the spirit, but we deteriorate many times to attempt walking with Jesus in the flesh or in our own strength. Uh, So when you get saved, let's say you get saved later in life, uh, it's an amazing thing. You start in the spirit, old things pass away, all things become new, you're a new creation in Jesus Christ. But then over time, because of the world and the devil and the flesh, which still, you know, you'll still have until you get your new body, uh, you can deteriorate and start walking in the energy of your flesh. You start to feel mature and, you know, I've, you have an I've got this kind of thing. And let's face it, we're always trying to figure out the answer, right? We're trying to figure out the answer. What is the answer to this? And then once I figure it out, that's, that's the answer. I've got this figured out. I don't need to really think about this anymore. I I know the answers to marriage and divorce and remarriage. I know all the answers to this because here's what I believe the Bible says. And, and, uh, you know, your counsel is always the same and it's always, you know, uh, hurtful because all it does is tell people what they already know, that they're not making it, (laughs) that they're failing. You don't offer them anything to help. Uh, I was at a a thing the other day and and this wonderful speaker, it was great, but the, the, the word now for people who are under stress and post-traumatic stress injury and all these kinds of things, the buzzword in the literature right now is resilience. You have to be resilient. And so when you're stressed out with all of these various things going on, and, and people are, you know, and, and especially certain individuals, and, and you're dealing with all this stress, you need to be resilient. I, I, no one knows what that means. It's like saying you need to, you know, well, I don't know what it's like. It, it, seriously, there's no, there's no class that says here's how you achieve resilience. And, and so people are always trying to figure things out in the flesh. And so we are drawn to that as human beings, and it happens even in the church. John Wesley writes, If after having renounced all, we do not watch incessantly and beseech God to accompany our vigilance with his, we shall begin again to be entangled and overcome. I am with the Father should read, I with the Father, emphasizing working together. Jesus claimed that he did only what his Father told him to do and that he said only what his Father told him to say. The two of them constitute a single omniscient, omnipotent testimony. Uh, And so if you're, you're trying to figure out who's giving the best testimony, well, Jesus and God together saying the exact same thing, that's pretty irrefutable. And so he's cutting down their ideas that he doesn't have the power to say what he says. It is also written in your law, verse 17, that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. It was God's law, and there was nothing wrong with it. They had made it their law by adding and subtracting from it. And so that's why Jesus said, you've written in your law. Then he quotes from 
Moses. The Pharisees had become law-bound. Jesus one day said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so he's saying, hey, it's great that you guys tithe and you're so into tithing that you even tithe of your uh, spices, uh, which sounds funny to us, but spices were a lot more valuable in those days than they are now. And uh, they didn't have all these knockoff spices. But uh, anyway, Jesus said, hey, that's great, but you know what? That's not what my law is about. That's not what a relationship with me is about. It's about things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Verse 19, then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Jesus, of course, is talking about his heavenly father. They, uh, their thoughts could not rise above the flesh. They thought of his earthly father. Their question was peppered with derision. Later in the chapter, we're going to see them more openly accuse Jesus of being the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary. And so they're uh, working up to that. But in the meantime, uh, they're you know, just cross-examining him, as it were. This whole section can be read as a kind of a courtroom situation with defense and plaintiffs and all that. And, and so Jesus is giving his testimony. The smartest... Most articulate, naturally talented religious men, the Pharisees, practicing the one true religious system on earth, written by the finger of God, given to the most humble man who ever lived. They did not know God. What more advantage could you have than these guys? And yet they did not know God because they were bound under and by the law and could not see what we would call the spirit of the law. For all of their study and self-righteous discipline, they did not realize that their scriptures were about Jesus. They were about the person who was talking to them, who was telling them plainly, really, who he is. He uses the I am. He performs the miracles. He talks about his Father in heaven. He, he talks about being in heaven with the Father, being on the earth, going back to heaven. And, you know, all of this is revealed in the Old Testament. Now, maybe not perfectly like we have it now in the New Testament, but it's revealed. And, and it wasn't enough for these guys to break through and recognize their Savior. Don't forget Jesus while reading your Bible and walking with the Lord. It's easier to do than you might think. We discover his promises and principles and his precedents, so much so that we are always rushing to the next book with its program to be more spiritual. Now, hopefully I won't hurt anyone's feelings by saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You do not need to pray the prayer of Jabez to break through to the blessed life. That was a big book about, I don't know, eight or ten years ago. That was the latest book. Good author, no problem with the author, not a heresy. But it goes back to this Old Testament guy, Jabez. There's a list of, you know, different Old Testament people. And then it gets to Jabez, and it talks about his prayer. And so um, 
everybody who teaches the Bible talks about the prayer of Jabez, but at one point it became elevated into something more than it is, books and videos and notebooks, you know, and everybody was learning to pray the prayer of Jabez. You know what your life is about? It's about learning to pray the prayer of Jean or Rick or Jacob or whoever you might be. Jabez prayed his prayer. You don't want to pray his prayer. It's stale. It's old. It's, it's gone. That, that, you know, that worked for him prior to Jesus Christ. In fact, we have a greater you know, boldness than Jabez ever could have had, right? And so don't, but that's the idea. We, we begin in the spirit. I can talk to God. Wow. That was a big thing for me, having uh, come from a Roman Catholic background where you talk to a priest who then talked to God for you. Always wondered what he said. Is he properly representing me? You know, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, you have a representative government there. Uh, and so I could talk directly to God. I don't care what Jabez is doing. You know, I, I want to learn about prayer for myself. Pray your prayers. And if you ever want to read a book on prayer, it should be shorter than your prayers. It should just say pray. You want to read some books on prayer? E.M. Bounds has a series of books on prayer. And essentially they say, uh, in a biblical way, they say you should be praying. Right? That's all, and that's really all you, you need to say. I think what we've done to prayer is we made it so difficult, so hard, so mysterious that we, it's, you know, we've lost the sense of, you're just talking to God. You didn't used to be able to do that. Now you can, right? And, and if you can't, the Holy Spirit is in you and he can. And so you have this relationship. And, and then we want to study prayer to figure out how to do prayer. And, uh, you know, just why don't you just pray? So anyway, enough of that. Verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Jesus liked to teach here in the treasury. It was there he called attention to the poor widow who put in her two mites. That's where they would come and, and you know, have their offering boxes. Maybe it had good acoustics. One of the Bible dictionaries notes the inner area of the temple contained three courts. The easternmost court was the court of the women. And it contained the temple treasury where people donated their money. Just in passing, it's nice to notice that Jesus taught in a place where women could gather and hear him, not just men. He wasn't looking for the most, you know, uh, any particular audience of men or spiritual men or anything like that. Jesus' message was for everyone. And this would have been a real blessing to the ladies to be able to sit and listen to a rabbi uh, expound and, and no less than Jesus. The Father protected Jesus from arrest and harm until his hour to be crucified came. This plan of God to redeem and restore creation cannot fail. It is a future that will come to pass. We're not going to figure out at the last second how to avoid Armageddon and get into a, a kind of kumbaya thing, you know, and, and say, Lord, we don't need you to come now because we've finally figured it out. When you read the book of the Revelation, which we believe is all future after chapter six or after chapter four, um, those things are going to happen. God is providentially going to see to it that they do happen. Uh, and, and so uh, here it's nothing for the Father to protect Jesus from arrest until his hour came. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away. You will seek me 
and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus is going to return to heaven, we know, leaving the Jews awaiting their kingdom. Is it cruel that they will seek Jesus but not find him? Well, Jesus wasn't describing a sincere seeking. Once they eliminated Jesus, they would seek a Messiah that better fit their desires. That's what he was talking about. You're going to seek, you know, but you're not going to find because their Messiah was gone. The Jews were like uh, that guy in Les Miserables. Is it Javert? Is that how you pronounce his name? Javert. I mean, you remember, remember Les Miserables? You know? No? Huh, okay. It's only one of the greatest pieces of literature in the Western world, but... Anyway, uh, he just... It, it was all... The loaf of bread, you know, that you stole a loaf of bread, you need to be punished. I don't care if your family's starving. I don't care. And he was all about the law. He couldn't... He couldn't find any wiggle room for mercy or grace. He kills himself at the end because he can't, you know, and, and uh, it's a great uh, parallel. You know, the, the law brings death when you trust in it that way and you have no, no room in it. And so uh, Jesus has shown us that grace and mercy are not only consistent with the law, they are governors of the law to see that it produces the result God intends, and that is salvation. The episode in the previous chapter, chapter 8, in the previous verses, rather, about the woman caught in adultery can be a humbling example for us. Yes, of course she deserved to be stoned, as the law commanded. Without violating the law, Jesus extended grace to her. She was saved and sent to go and sin no more. And so under the law, just law, you've just got the law, woman in adultery, let's get some rocks going. Whizzing some rocks her way, right? Jesus says, well, there's also grace. And um, in grace, I might want to point out that all of you are sinners. Probably more of you deserve to be stoned or excommunicated than we know. So maybe we should find a better solution to this because God is, he doesn't hate people. He, he does, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? And so what can we do that is, you know, that is gracious? A lot of times when I first came here, people not in our church but mostly from other churches, the big thing was church discipline. They always wanted to know, you know, if you were going to bring church discipline against somebody. And um, the tr truth is, church discipline goes on all the time. It just doesn't usually break out into the public because it gets taken care of at a different level. But that's an aside. And, and it reminds me of this section of, you know, with the woman. It's like, hey, we need to discipline this person. And it's sad, and this is anecdotal, but it's usually a woman who was committing adultery. <laughs> that's the only person in the entire church that we care about in terms of, bringing charges against them publicly. We need to extend grace. Now, grace, you can't just extend grace. You can't overlook sin. And Jesus didn't do that. He, he, he saved this woman. He told her, you know, that she was sinning, but that she could go and sin no more. And so that's what we're talking about here. Law and grace are not incompatible. We divide them, but God unites them. And if you're going to make an error, err on the side of grace. The time for now, uh, the time is now rather for the unchurched. The unchurched are non-believers. 
They are not spiritual members of the body of Christ. If you're a believer, you are a member of the body of Jesus on earth. Tragically, it's become popular for believers to quit the local church. We call them the forsakers. We'll see why in a moment. And this is becoming even more popular uh, in the age of COVID, right? Because everybody's gotten used to watching church online. That's great. We, we're online. We're online everywhere. Uh, but that doesn't mean you uh, don't go to church or don't have a local church. And so let's get into this a little bit. The Apostle Paul wrote, If the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body was an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. It is as absurd to think you don't need to belong to a local church as it is to think you don't need certain members of your body. And all of the um, metaphors and illustrations of the church are like this. In another place, the Bible says we are like living stones being built together, a holy habitation for the Lord. And so, you know, you need to be built together with other believers. You just, you can't be a, you can't be that building by yourself. You can't be a one stone building. What's that rock over there? That's, that's Gene. He, he thinks he's a building, but he's a separated rock. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? Jews thought that their chosen status meant a free pass into heaven when they died. When Jesus said he was going where they could not come, they might have assumed he meant he was going to Hades uh, because certainly when they died, they were going to heaven. He would not take his life by suicide. He would give his life in submission as a sacrifice, as our substitute. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin of blaspheming God, the Holy Spirit. If your question is, can a Christian who commits suicide go to heaven, you've answered it by identifying them as a Christian, right? That's how we phrase the question. Can a Christian commit suicide and go to heaven? Well, were they a Christian? Yeah, okay. Can a Christian do blank and go to heaven? If you're a Christian, yeah. You think, well, now, Gene, we're getting onto some, what, you know, some churches call greasy grace, right? How can you extend grace to these people? Have you read the Bible? Have you read about some of the crazy guys and gals that were saved? Uh, not to excuse us, not to, you know, sin shouldn't abound that grace might abound, but what a, if you didn't know some of these people were saved, if God, God had, hadn't told you, you would be sure that they are in, you know, going to go to hell. Uh, my, our favorite example of court is Lot, the nephew of Abraham. In the New Testament, we're told his righteous soul was vexed. What part of that guy's life was righteous? He believed God. He lived a terrible, carnal life, but he was saved. And so, uh, you know, the idea, you know, it, was that person a Christian? Uh, you know, you want to argue that they weren't really saved. Well, now you're on your own ground. You're the one that's saying suicide is unforgivable. Uh, and it's not. It just isn't. Should you commit suicide? No. Because your life is not your own. And, um, you know, 
it doesn't help and it's not the answer and all of those things, but um, we're on the other side of that here where some people, you, you know people who've committed suicide, Christians, and that's a sad and tragic thing, but it doesn't exclude them from heaven. Verse 25, then they said to him, who are you? Or yeah, who are you? Rather, that was how I wanted to say it. It's impossible to hear the inflection in their question. It's probably safe to say that they were being argumentative. This is a who do you think you are? Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. Author Stephen King spends months and even years writing his opening sentences. I found this fantastic. Jesus used the phrase from the beginning. There are two great beginning sentences in the Bible, the greatest opening sentences ever written. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus wasn't merely present at creation as a spectator. He was not the first thing created. He is the creator. He is the almighty, eternal God. Verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. One way of understanding this is that Jesus could have said more. He could have judged more, but he limited himself to his Father's will. Don't get his, uh, the impression that Jesus wanted to do things that his Father would not allow. They were never in any disagreement. So what I think he's saying here is that there's a lot I could say, guys. But my father and I have decided to do it this way. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about Jesus stooping and writing in the ground. Woman caught in adultery. What do you say? And he goes down on the ground and he essentially is doodling. And it sent them probably to a passage in Jeremiah which spoke about their unfaithfulness. You know, and so Jesus could have said a lot more. He could have passed by the doodle and said, well, let's talk about this. Let's have a rational discussion about the law and grace, and let me show you why we're not going to stone her. But instead, he and his father said, you know what would be cool? Let them discover this for themselves. And so Jesus say this and then doodle, and then say this and then doodle some more and just see what happens. And so, it, it was, you know, that's what Jesus is all about. One of the most asked questions is, how do I know God's will for my life? God's will for you is mostly spelled out already in the word. For instance, the Apostle Paul wrote, this is the will of God, your sanctification or your daily growth, your becoming more like Christ, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Wow, that's pretty straightforward, right? And what a word for today. Sometimes you think, well, there's a lot of other things Paul could have said, you know, about the will of God. And he says, no, let's talk about sexual immorality because it always devolves to that. We talk about this all the time. God's morality is a biblical marriage and, you know, everything he says about that. And so the world is in immorality. And so the Lord would say, whether you've you know, been a Christian 50 years, you're a brand new Christian God's will is that you should abstain from sexual immorality, and here's what that means. And then you think, okay, that's God's will, period. Uh, I don't have to wonder. 
The passages regarding husbands, wives, and children reveal God's will for marriage and family. There are passages about your job and your work and things like that. The Bible reveals how to handle your finances. When you think about it, you can find everything you need to live a godly life in the Bible. As far as God's specific will for, you know, should you stay in Hanford or not, uh, I say yes, you say no. I say hello. Anyway, um, a Beatles song flew through my mind right then. But, uh, you know, if you're doing all the other things in God's will, then he'll show you. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mentioned the forsakers. You find God's will for them in the book of Hebrews. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking, assembling together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Austin Fisher tweeted, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I quote, this guy tweeted on Facebook, he said this, tick-tock, tick-tock. Austin Fisher tweeted, the Bible talks about God's will a lot. Interestingly, the Bible does not tell us to seek God's will, but to do God's will. Why? Because whereas we often assume we don't know God's will and so need to seek it, the Bible mostly assumes we do know God's will and just need to do it. Verse 27, they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. William MacDonald pointed out previously when the Lord Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, they realized he was claiming equality with God the Father, but not so anymore. The more they rejected Jesus, the more confused they were becoming. Their flesh was getting harder to keep at bay. They wanted to kill Jesus, and by the time they maneuvered his crucifixion, they were wicked and hellish murderers who led the crowds to say, his blood be on us and on our children. Time is always now for non-believers. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, Psalm 95. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists was founded in 1945 by Albert Einstein and other scientists who helped develop the first atomic weapon in the Manhattan Project. Two years later, they created the Doomsday Clock. It uses the imagery of apocalypse, for midnight and the contemporary idiom of nuclear explosion, countdown to zero, to convey threats to humanity and the planet. The clock has become a universally recognized indicator of the world's vulnerability to catastrophe uh, from nuclear weapons, climate change, and disruptive technologies in other domains. In March 2022, the Science and Security Board released a new statement in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine it is 100 seconds to midnight on the doomsday clock. We have the correct view of the future and of how to count it down. There's no doomsday in which humans are annihilated. There is what we listed earlier, great tribulation, millennial kingdom, and eternity. It's the dawn of a new day, not doomsday. We may not have 100 seconds, however. The time is now. If you're a non-believer, you need to repent and receive Jesus Christ right now. Time's up. Church, having begun in the Spirit, let us not individually or corporately default to our own energy. Let us not forsake assembling together. Let us press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Jesus Christ.